Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available ProPower Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Hello, Time Sucker. You are about to listen to the first ever live recording of Time Suck. Recorded at the Hollywood Improv on October 5th, 2017. The feel of the show, being a live show, going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. And while the audience was not mic'd as directly as I would have liked, you, you can hear them. And, uh, and I will say, being there, the energy was fantastic. A lot of Time Suck shirts, a lot of just really cool people I talked to after the show. Following the top five takeaways, there will be a studio recording of this week's Time Sucker updates and a preview of next week's episode. Hope you enjoy this. I had a blast. Now you guys ready for your show tonight? Yeah, please put your hands together for the host of Time Suck, Dan Cummins! <laughs> ah, hail Nimrod! <laughs> this is so weird. Uh, this is. Uh, I'm glad you guys showed up. This is. Uh, this is different for me, for sure. Uh, you guys have listened. You know that I've never done a live one. I'm very used to like being in a hotel room, staring at a couch cushion, uh, which I use to absorb sound when I'm on the road, like a maniac, or just uh, uh, in a basement, also like a maniac, recording it by myself. So, <laughs> so uh, today, I, I don't think I told you guys. It's uh, the Wonderland Murders. Uh, that's uh, it's LA based. So I thought. Uh, be something fun. I like all the t-shirts, man. Thank you, guys. I feel a little weird wearing a shirt with a monogram of my own face, but fuck it. Might as well be proud of it. <laughs> so let's, uh, so I'll, I'll talk to you guys in a, in a second here. We'll do a little intro here to start. Um, July 1, 1981, LA detectives arrived at 8763 Wonderland Avenue uh, in Laurel Canyon uh, here in LA, and they walked into what they described as the most gruesome crime scene uh, they had seen since the uh, LaBianca Tate Manson murders in 1969. And the bodies of four people, Ron Lanius, Billy Deverell, Barbara Richardson, and Joy Miller, had been found savagely, savagely bludgeoned uh, to death with a metal pipe 
uh, murder weapon that would never be found, but they knew based on the little striations that it was, in fact, a metal pipe. And a fifth victim, Susan Lanius, somehow survived, even though she was horrifically beaten. Uh, within days, America's most famous porn star, uh, John Holmes, uh, suspected, brought in for questioning. Police believe the murders were a retribution killing. Uh, for a recent heist, a group of petty thieves and junkies who had called themselves the Wonderland Gang uh, had pulled off uh, a few days earlier when they pretended to be San Francisco Vice Police. I love the balls these guys had. They would just fake badges, and they would just go rob other drug dealers and then just take their drugs and then snort and sell uh, whatever they had, and they just, <laughs> they just fucked with the wrong guy. They, they went with the big fish, uh, Eddie Nash, and then a couple of days later, like, you know, everybody at that house was found dead. So it's a, it's a, today is a, one of those kind of, I think, sucks where the, the, the ride is maybe more fun than the destination. We're going to get pretty weird into the golden era of porn in the 70s. A lot of, lot of dick talk today on the side. Uh, <laughs> so it's going to be a tale of uh, murder. Uh, it's going to be a tale of coke. Uh, it's going to be a tale of uh, uh, a lot of coke, a uh, big dick. Mostly coke. Today is mostly about coke. <laughs> And this, and this feels like the right place to do it. In the, the improv, I feel like a lot of coke has been snorted here over the years. There's probably some coke being snorted tonight. And uh, let's get into it today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. All right, so, so thanks, you guys. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for showing up. And you guys, uh, yeah, I have a bonus one coming out tomorrow. Uh, you guys have not been fucking around on the reviews. I th- I th- I'm behind now. Two bonus ones. I thought that would be like a slower crawl, and uh, I got a lot of research to do. It's been, it's been, it's been a fun ride this last uh, it's last year. A lot of uh, I never thought I, I feel like a I feel like a rain man of just weird fucking dark information. Like at any party, if someone was like talking about anything just creepy or weird, I'm like, I have some things to add to that. I have too much information for that. So let's get into today's, though. Um, I'll save the announcements and stuff uh, for, for kind of like a, for people listening right now to the live one at the end of the show, because that would just be fucking boring uh, to do here, uh, tour dates and stuff. That would just be weird. Like, hey, if you guys want to see me in Portland, you guys are like, we're in fucking L.A. We're, we're not, we don't love you that much. <laughs> so let's get, in, let's get into John Holmes, man, because the tale of the Wonderland murders, uh, it, it really starts with the tale of John Holmes, a.k.a. Johnny Watt. And by the way, if you look at these notes, man, I don't know if you guys thought I was a brainiac who just had all of this shit in my head every week, but not even close. A lot of, lot of looking at a computer, way too much, be, especially because uh, you guys know that if I fuck up anything at all, so many emails. Uh, I now know that, what is it, M-L-L-E is... M- Mademoiselle. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got a lot of corrections, a lot of corrections on that one. And, uh, and, and it, it's Saika? It's Saika? I don't know. Whatever that fucking ship was called last week. I got corrected on that, too. Okay, but John, but John Holmes, I know how to say that. Uh, so this is, uh, this is a guy still probably fairly known to, to you know, middle-aged men who, uh, I don't know, still jerking it off uh, to uh, feathered bangs and, and unwaxed vaginas. He was, a, he was a big deal. He was a big deal. <laughs> and he was a big deal pretty much exclusively for just having a giant dick. Uh, it's, it's uh, no definite measurement of his dick exists. Uh, he died of AIDS in 1988 at the age of 43, and tragically, no Guinness Book of World Records officials were there to measure it uh, fully erect. No plaster mold was taken, uh, as porn stars I hear do now. Uh, it's estimated that John's penis was about half the size of Bojangles' dick, which could be his fourth leg. <laughs> no, but I do have some real info about this. I'm just dump these. About this guy's dick. Uh, he claimed it. I'm so fascinated with this stuff because it was just, it's so enormous. He, he claimed that it was 16 inches long, uh, 
13 and a half is basically what, what everybody in the industry <laughs> from the weird documentaries I watched said it was 13 and a half when erect uh, and, and pretty thick apparently as well. Uh, golden age of porn actress Sika said it was like going down on a fire hydrant. So, so pretty, that's a quote, that's a quote. Uh, if you're really curious, just Google John Holmes. Plenty of footage comes up. Uh, he put in a lot of hard work, a lot of long hours. Um, probably going to slip some puns in here. And, uh, and it's, okay, so here, here's uh, some, some dick kind of, to make it relative. I, I had to do some more research. According to a 2017 study, I love this, this was done, by a British journal, journal of Urology International, the average length of a flaccid penis is 3.61 inches long, 5.16 inches when erect. So John was almost three times the size of a normal human dick. Which I, I, I feel like finding that guy for porn, it'd be like finding a nine-foot center for a basketball team. Like, it just, <laughs> he's a mutant. It's just like an unbelievable freak of nature. Uh, but I wondered, like, the age-old question, like, how do you measure your dick, right? Like, do you measure from the tip to the base? Uh, do you measure from the tip to the butthole, as my dad taught me? Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you measure from the tip to your friend's butthole, as my friend's dad taught me? None of that's true. None of that's true. Uh, I, di I did learn. I did learn. Um, you measure from the, from the tip of your penis to where it connects with your pubic bone, and apparently you're allowed to push in your fat. These are the scientists talking about this. You're allowed to push in your fat. Uh, you don't get to include uh, uh, foreskin. You don't get to stretch out your weird turtle wiener if you're one of those people to add an inch. That does not count, according to the scientists. Uh, these same researchers surveyed a bunch of women and let them play with a bunch of different sized dick replicas. I'm not making any of this up. Because they wanted to know like, what was their preferred penis size. And apparently for a one-night stand or for a relationship, six inches long roughly and five inches around, which seems pretty thick. Oh, my God, is the correct response. Every, every guy in here just breathed a little easier when you said that. Like, that's, that seems a bit much. Um, <laughs> so I, I, and I don't know what's, like, funnier to imagine, just, like, uh, these scientists doing this kind of research with a sense of humor, or maybe I think it's funnier if there's no sense of humor about this whatsoever. <laughs> Just completely sterile, just like a very cold environment. Just, uh, do you believe your penis is at maximum firmness? Would you, would, you, would you like me to put my gloved hand at the base of your penis? Would it help to have another researcher rub the tip of your penis to reach maximum erection potential? Just like very, very, very dry. Now, <laughs> now if there's any time suckers out there hearing this and they're kind of disappointed about the average length and the size, uh, if you suffer from what scientists refer to as uh, teeny tiny wiener syndrome, <laughs> AKA, but seriously, where's the rest of it, itis? <laughs> rest easy. There's a surgery, I didn't know this. Uh, you, can, you can increase your penis size. You can, uh, you can, they say if it's under 1.6 inches flaccid, I don't know how they came up with that exact of a fucking measurement. Like if there's a guy with 1.7, they're like, no, you're fine. You're totally in the normal range. Uh, less than three inches erect, you can have uh, some options. You can, you can have the ligament that attaches your penis to the pubic bone inside of your body loosened up to allow uh, your penis to extend further out of your body. Uh, that's known in my mind as the Franken-penis option. Uh, you can have liposuction done to the, around the, like, the fat of the pubic bone. Uh, please don't stare at my gut when I, I should have gestured. I feel like, I feel like in my head you, you're all saying like you could use a little of that. Uh, and there's also, there's also inflatable penis, uh, penile prosthetics, uh, which are sur surgically inserted into the penis. Uh, if you pay a little extra, a little cuckoo bird comes out every time you come. 
That's not, that part's not true, but the rest of it is. Uh, so a lot of boner surgeries out there. Um, but enough about dicks in general. Let's talk about John Holmes. Uh, in the words of an industry insider, writer Mike Sager, regarding John's uh, alter ego, Johnny Wad, he just said, quote, he wasn't that good looking. He wasn't that smart. He wasn't that brave. He just had a huge dick and he liked to fuck. <laughs> that was enough to get him famous. So let's, let's learn about Johnny Holmes and kind of learn about the golden age of porn, which I didn't know. I'm like, why did people care about this one guy? And there's some interesting kind of cultural stuff with uh, the 70s and porn. It's very different than it is now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Uh, August 8th, uh, 1944, John Curtis Estes was born uh, in the small rural town of Asheville, Ohio, about 25 miles south of Columbus. Uh, he's the youngest of four kids, born to Mary June Holmes. His, his biological father is thought to be Carl Estes, a railroad worker. Uh, the father's name was left blank on the birth certificate. Uh, Mary had been married to the father of her first three kids, Edgar Harvey Holmes. Edgar Harvey, that's a tough name. Uh, prior to John's birth, and they would remarry in 1945, John would take the name Holmes. And they would divorce again in 1947. Edgar would no longer be in the picture. So whether his real dad was Carl or Edgar, either way, dad's not in the picture. Around 1947, Mary and the kids moved to Columbus and live in a welfare project for a few years. And then Mary met Harold Bowman. Uh, New Year's Eve, 1951, Mary and Harold got married. The family moves to Patascala, Ohio, a little town of around 2,000 people in the 50s and 60s when John would grow up and undoubtedly freak out other boys in the locker room uh, whenever he showered. Uh, in addition to being famous for John Holmes, uh, Patascala also has produced professional bowler Robert Smith, a man with seven career PBA titles. Uh, so they've, you know, kicked out a couple dudes who'd make a name for themselves being really good at knocking around some balls. Uh, I know that was corny. I know that was corny, but it was, it was right there. A bowler and a fucking porn guy in the same town. Yeah, no, you don't need to clap for that. That was fine. <laughs> that, was, that was the eight-year-old in me. That, that seems young. That was the 11-year-old in me. And, and according to future wife Sharon, stepdad Harold was like a lifetime movie stepdad. So not good. Uh, he's an abusive piece of shit. When Harold and Mary had their own kid, uh, David, a few years into the marriage, apparently he was done with the stepkids. So John and other kids were just like second-class citizens and uh, pretty abusive. When uh, John was 16, uh, he threw him down the stairs. John had finally had enough, uh, knocked his dad, uh, stepdad out, then was worried about kind of like retribution, was worried about like what he would do next time, told his mom, if you don't sign me up for the army, uh, I'm going to kill this guy. Mom signs him up for the army uh, at 16, which I didn't, I don't know if that's a thing. I didn't look up if that's a thing now. Uh, that's so weird to me that back then you could just go into the military at 16 years old, but that's what he did. And uh, so at the 1960, he goes after boot camp, goes to Nuremberg, Germany, where he was a member of the Signal Corps. Uh, also, Marshall Applewhite from a few episodes ago, member of the Signal Corps, so fucking weirdos. There's probably like a bunch of listeners that are like, I'm a member of the Signal Corps. <laughs> How dare you? So at the end of, uh, uh, so yeah, so three years later, 1963, he gets an honorable discharge, uh, goes back to Patascala for a few weeks to spend a little time with his mom, strikes out for L.A. then on his own, uh, and he actually had to flee local authorities after accidentally murdering a dude at the YMCA uh, in the locker room when he turned too fast to his left, hit the guy in the temple with his dick, and knocked him uh, uh, fucking on the floor and killed him immediately. <laughs> of course, of course that's not true. I love it. Uh, there's been a few of those times where I don't add the, of course, that's not true. And I've gotten people be like, so did a dog really eat that kid? <laughs> so that's why I have to say it every time now. Because I, <laughs> I don't want someone to be at a party being like, did you know that John Holmes killed a guy in a YMCA locker room? <laughs> I swear to God. I swear my mother's life. Uh, okay, so <laughs> 1964. He works a variety of odd jobs out here in L.A. Uh, he's a 20-year-old uh, 
uh, no, he meets uh, a 20 year old ambulance driver. No, God damn it. He's a 20 year old. He's 20 years old, you guys. His name is John. I'm getting this back together. He meets a 21 year old nurse, Sharon Gabini, and uh, they move in together just a few months later, get married August of 1965, just after he turns 21. And then the spring of 1965, he has a job as like a forklift operator uh, in a meat, like meat packing plant, and, uh, which I think is kind of funny that he was working at a meat packing plant. And then he became the king of porn. A little, little humor there for me. Uh, but he starts having health problems, uh, which I guess kind of led to his career in porn in a weird way. Uh, he, got, he got like three collapsed lungs in a period of six months because of the freezer temperature, like the air temperature in this freezer at this meatpacking plant. So he's like recuperating, and he's, he's playing poker in this, uh, where was it, in Gardenia, in some little like illegal poker house. And this is how it all starts. He's just using the bathroom. Some other guy in the bathroom who happened to also be a, an adult photographer, uh, I guess just looked over at his dick. And was like, I don't know how you like approach that, but he was like, hey, uh, I think you could uh, put that thing to work, you know. Or <laughs> there's something, but it's, but it led to him doing some adult photographs, some still photographs, and then uh, <laughs> and, and and if you look up stuff on him, he's a pathological liar, John Holmes. He will say he got into porn in some documentaries when he was a UCLA grad student. And some girl across the hall who he was having sex with was so impressed with his dick that she's like, you have to go into porn. Not true at all. Uh, basically, almost everything the guy says in documentaries, according to everyone else interviewed, is just complete and utter lies, which, again, I find weird. Like, when you have the world's biggest dick, why are you continually exaggerating everything else? <laughs> like, you, you've won the, the most biggest contest of life. Like, you don't need to add other stories, but that's what he did. So uh, shortly after this early photo shoot, uh, Sharon, his new wife, walks in on John in the bathroom measuring. <laughs> this is, I saw her in numerous interviews say this. He's measuring his erect penis in the bathroom. And I guess she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I know what I want to do with my life. <laughs> like this is his moment of clarity when he's measuring his dick in a bathroom. And he's like, I got it. This is what I want to do. <laughs> and he says he wants to go into porn, which I think is a weird thing to tell your wife. And uh, she's like, magazines, movies. And apparently he was like, both. And unbelievably, she didn't leave him. She thought it would be like a passing fad, and that eventually he would just get back to being, I don't know, a forklift guy and not be uh, a porn guy. But, and, and I think that's so strange, but I also remember this is the late 60s, like around the summer of love. It's L.A., free love, all these drugs. Like People are just like very forgiving socially. Uh, I don't think that would fly now. I don't think most marriages, if you were like, hey, baby, I know I was going into accounting, but... Rather fuck strangers on camera. I doubt a lot of couples be like, nah, yeah, man, just, you know, you follow your bliss. You follow your bliss. So, so that happens. Uh, and then around 1970, uh, it's hard to nail down an exact time because uh, not all early kind of nude films had proper kind of uh, credits. He got into actual film. And, I, and, I, and he got into loops, which I didn't know. Back then there was like peep shows, and guys would put a couple quarters in some adult video store kind of peep show, and they would just watch like a 10-minute loop with no noise of just, you know, whatever, people having sex. And, uh, but then in 1971, he got his, his big break, so to speak, in, in Johnny Wad, which would become his big name in porn. And I love the story of this. There's this guy, Bob Chin, who was an early porn director, who you can see on numerous documentaries kind of talk about this. This is what he says happened, how he started his career, which I think is just fucking incredible. He walked onto this other shoot... Uh, and introduced himself to Bob and says that he would like to uh, get some work, you know, in the adult movies. And the guy's like, well, what, what can you do? And he's like, I can work as a gaffer. And Bob was like, nah, well, I already have a gaffer, so I'm good. And he was like, well, I, I can work as a grip. And he was like, well, we already got a grip. And he's like, I can be an actor. And apparently Bob said, what are your credentials? 
And legend has it, he just whipped his dick out and said, this is my credential. And Bob was very impressed, and his career was launched. And I think every guy, whether you want to do porn or not, admires that in some weird way. That you could get any job in that method, right? Or like a promotion at work. Just like, why, why do you think you deserve this promotion? Just zip, flop. I think you see why I should deserve that promotion. But yeah, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. We're going to give you a raise, my friend. It's so impressive in a weird way. So they, they um, and this is how sad like porn movies were, like the, the production quality. <laughs> they decide like kind of on the spot. They're like, okay, Bob and the producer are like, we can work with this guy. We can make, we can make some movies uh, with this guy. And uh, <laughs> they come up with the name Johnny Wad because his other producer goes, man, look at the Wad on that guy. They take his first name. That's all the thought that went into it, Johnny Wad. And they put extra care into making this movie. Uh, they spent a couple hours writing it. They wrote it on the back of like an envelope. And, uh, and then they shot it uh, in a day. And, and then I guess like it, it raised standards. There was this other porn star in this documentary talking about how other movies after this were like, God, if we could just make a movie like Johnny Watt. Like they really raised the bar. I'm like, how fucking low was the bar? Like, what was it like before where it's like, man, we really, they went all out for Johnny Watt. I remember the good old days, man, when we would just spend, like, so many seconds working on a movie. We'd, you know, we'd get it all ready for breakfast. We'd cast it. We'd write it. We'd shoot it. We'd edit it. We'd be done before lunch. Then fucking Johnny Watt came along with his $750 budget. <laughs> that was the total budget. Uh, he got paid $75, which was big money for that. And, uh, and before we continue, like, with Holmes, he's going to become very famous I, I just, like, didn't understand that because I'm like, how are people watching porn in the 70s where it's not like, you know, on a smartphone, you know, not that most guys are doing that a lot, uh, <laughs> or their home computer whenever you're not home. Uh, I've heard that some of that goes on. But, like, how are these guys watching? I mean, before VHS and everything, and, uh, and I guess it was, uh, you know, like, I, I, I did a little, like, research into the history of porn in general. And it cracked me up. It was way earlier than I thought. For some reason, I thought it came much, much later in film. But uh, porn started being shot basically back when films started being shot, uh, which goes back to the 1880s. The earliest surviving erotic film is a French film, a seven-minute-long striptease called Les Cochères de la Marie, shot in 1896. The oldest surviving example of any motion picture is from 1888, uh, called Round Hay Garden Scene, just two seconds of a lady walking from, like, here to there. So they, they figured out, and I feel like it was just like some dude was like, wait a minute, we can film a woman and then watch it later in private? How quickly can we film her naked? Like, just, it had to have been a pretty fast process. So by 1910 in Austria, uh, theaters would have stag nights, kind of like men's only night at uh, uh, the films or the theaters. And, uh, and actually in, in South America, like in Argent, <laughs> uh, now, now I'm so confused on words. Uh, Argent Argentina. That's a word, right? That's a country, right? Argentina. God damn it. Thank you. See, if I was if you guys weren't here, I'd be like, in back in Argentina. <laughs> I get a lot of emails, you fucking idiot. <laughs> but there is this film uh, called El Sotario uh, from nineteen oh seven where it showed people actually having sex. That's the oldest film of people having sex. Uh, there was uh, a blowjob, so pretty hot shit for nineteen oh seven. Early German film from 1910 featured oral, vaginal, even anal sex. The Germ Germans always fucking pushing the envelope of porn, right? Aren't they known for the shysta films, like the shit films? No? Uh, in the 1920s, 
silent film pornos were shown in brothels around America, which makes sense because early porn was illegal. It was like this weird, weird time in America from just basically like the early 20th century all, all through kind of until the 80s where it, the legality of porn was based on the county, essentially, it was shown. And sometimes it would be illegal, but then also overlooked. Like in Times Square, they'd have peep shows. Uh, they could show nudity, but they couldn't show vaginal penetration, but they would. And they just kind of like, you know, uh, either bribe local cops a little bit, or cops just didn't bother with it. But if you were like in Macon, Georgia, probably not going to open up an adult film you know, theater. Uh, like if you were in like Bible Belt places, they were way, way stricter on this kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, and there, and there was, like, various laws. That, that, and it was, like, an underground industry. They called them stag films or blue films. And in the 40s and 50s, they would just get, like, passed around. It was essentially like you had to know a guy, which I think is so weird. Like, like basically how drugs are sold, like illegal drugs. Like, you'd have, like, a coke guy and a weed guy and a naked lady guy. <laughs> which I don't know. Like, I don't know how you find that guy in your little town. Like, hey, you, uh, <clears throat> hey, daddy-o. <laughs> Uh, that weed you gave me was out of sight, you know. Uh, you know, it really razz my berries if you got some naked ladies. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's all the lingo I can remember from a weird '50s website. <laughs> razz my berries. That's a real thing people used to say. You know, a cool cat who could razz my berries. So 1957, there was a landmark court case, uh, Roth versus the United States, uh, ended with a ruling that obscene material was not protected by the First Amendment. So that kind of made uh, obscenity and morality laws a lot stronger across the country. Um, but then by the 1960s, there are like sex toy and lingerie shops around the country. Um, and then uh, by 1970, there are around 750 adult theaters in the United States showing porn, which again is so weird to me that you would just go to a theater to watch porn. Like that is the creepiest thing ever to me. Uh, there's one still uh, operating in L.A. that I'll talk about later. Uh, we'll get into some Yelp reviews of the last existing. <laughs> They're fucking great. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it just, in 1973, Miller versus California really opened up the legality of pornography when Marvin Miller was convicted for mass mailing of sexually explicit advertisements for adult books and films he had for sale. His conviction was overturned. And then basically over that, porn was kind of tolerated uh, across the country. And also in 1969, Andy Warhol... Uh, his movie, The Blue Movie, I don't know if any film connoisseurs know of that. That was uh, the first film in the U.S. to contain an explicit sex scene and receive a widespread kind of you know, mainstream theatrical release. And then in 1972, the film Deep Throat was released, and that was the first, like, yeah, that was the first truly adult movie to get a wide release. So porn was cool then. So uh, porn was making a mainstream move. During this kind of sexual revolution, which makes sense, where you know, birth control is pretty easy to get for the first time, uh, abortions are pretty easy to get for the first time, and most STDs can be knocked out with penicillin. So, like, it was the best time ever to fuck around. Like, in the history of humanity, if you're like, I want to be, like, just, I want to fuck so many people. If you get a time machine, probably 65, 74 is where you're going to want to go. All right, time suckers. Time for a quick word from today's awesome sponsor. Today's first ever live time suck is brought to you by Chubby's. Never get tired of that fantastic name. I love fall in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. You know, the leaves change in color, the cool, crisp air. Don't have to mow my lawn anymore. But here's something I don't love. Having to wear pants outside again, not getting to wear my chubbies down to the lake. Luckily, Chubbies has a new outerwear collection. That's right. Chubbies is no longer fucking around with fall. They have pullovers, zip-ups, vests that will keep you feeling warm and looking fresh. Everything in the collection is wind-resistant, made with 100% woven nylon, super soft, and functional polar fleece. 
Some of the stuff is water resistant as well, and a lot of Chubby's jackets and vests are also reversible, so you get all the warmth, double the style. I love the Lumber from Down Under Outdoor Reversible Classic Red and Black Plaid Fleece. The Lumber from Down Under. Cool twist on a classic fleece, man. Flip it inside out, and it's a dope black and gray jacket. Uh, really, really cool looking. Uh, so get cozy with Chubby's. Go to chubbies.com slash timesuck today and sign up to get first dibs on Chubby's, Chubby's Outerwear Collection. They're not even quite out yet. This is brand new shit. Get it before it sells out. That's Chubby's, C-H-U-B-B-I-E-S dot com slash timesuck to experience Chubby's Outerwear, chubbies.com slash timesuck. And now back to our live recording. Uh, so this is the world kind of John Holmes is living in 1971. He's, he's in L.A., second only to New York City in terms of kind of porn consumption. And he's the biggest dick in the industry, and he kind of comes this underground sensation. So he gets, he gets known. He works. He works a lot. Somehow he stays married. Uh, John and Sharon have the weirdest relationship to me where uh, she doesn't leave him, but she stops having sex with him, but they share the same bed still. So, like, they'll hug, kiss, be affectionate, just no sex. Uh, but not get divorced. Uh, and, you know, knowing that he's doing what he's doing, she says, this is the weirdest quote, she goes, I have no problem with your living with me, but I don't want anything to do with you physically. I'll do your laundry. I'll be your mother. I'll be your confessor. I'll be your sister. I'll be your friend, but I don't want to be physically associated with this. Uh, okay. John had to be, like, inside, like, fucking sweet. Let me get this straight. You're going to kind of pay the bills and do the laundry still, but I'll just fucking do whatever. Okay. Uh, I, I do find just this, this lifestyle decisions like that fascinating. I guess whatever works um, you know, for different people. Uh, gets even weirder, though, their relationship. In 1976, John and Sharon are living in an apartment complex in Glendale that Sharon is managing. And then 15-year-old, this is so creepy, but it is a different era. 15-year-old Dawn Schiller moves into one of these apartments with her sister, brother, and dad, all having recently arrived from Florida uh, after her parents' divorce. And John, who's 31 at the time, Starts dating Don because he's a fucking scumbag. Exactly. Gross is right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's going to be some more 70s context, which doesn't make it better, uh, but makes it more normal, unfortunately, for the time. Uh, I guess things were so different uh, back then. I, I, I just can't understand, like, in that moment, like, as Don's father, how do you not beat him to death? Like, like, like the most famous, you know who this guy is, like, and he's fucking your 15-year-old daughter. How do you be like, I don't like it, but, you know, whatever, it's the 70s doesn't make any sense to me. It gets even creepier. Uh, Don's dad moves back to Florida uh, sometime either 76 or 77. Don doesn't move with him. She moves in with Sharon and John, uh, living in their two-bedroom apartment. John and Sharon share the master bedroom. <laughs> Don gets the guest room. John sleeps with Sharon but fucks Don. That's the weird, very unique arrangement they have made. Sharon considers herself uh, a mother to Don. Ah, uh, Okay. That's a unique, that's a unique, unique spin on, on motherhood, you know? I'm just like your mom, Don. I'm just like your mom, who sometimes lets you fuck dad in the guest room. <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a cool mom. <laughs> so weird. Uh, things were so different back then, too. Uh, this, this disturbed me. In 1962, the American Law Institute recommended that the legal age of consent be dropped in every state to age 10. Seriously. This is 1962. In fact, until the mid-1960s, the legal age of consent in Delaware was seven. 
Not kidding. Like, a 50-year-old man could legally have sexual intercourse with a 7-year-old in Delaware in 1949. So insane, and, like, why that fucking age? Like, how, how is it, like, <laughs> as a politician, you'd be like, 6 is fucking ridiculous. 8? <laughs> so creepy. So creepy. Okay. So, also in 1976, here's where we start heading down the path to the Wonderland murders. John starts doing a lot of cocaine. Uh, if weed was kind of the drug of the choice for hippies in the, uh, in the 60s, coke was definitely like the disco party drug of the, of the 70s. I don't know if you've ever done coke, but um, I get it. I get why it's popular. Uh, I haven't done coke a lot. I, I don't do it anymore. I've done it, I don't know, probably like five or ten times. And every time I was like, no, this is fucking great. <laughs> this, this is absolutely the best. Like, whatever you're kind of into before, you're super into on Coke. <laughs> like, if you think, like, ping pong's kind of fun, like, normally, get enough Coke, and you're like, fucking ping pong's the best! <laughs> How am I not playing ping pong all day, every day? So, <laughs> it's, a, it's an exciting drug. Uh, but don't do it. Uh, and it's all, but it's also really expensive, and the more you do, like, the more you need to get the same kind of high, and the high kind of depreciates. So, uh... <laughs> John, while he is kind of famous, he's not making a lot of money. Like, even if you're, like, the biggest porn actor in the 70s, you're still making, like, $1,000 a shoot. You're not doing more than, a sh you know, a few shoots a week. And he's doing, you know, they said, like, some days more than $1,000 worth of coke a day uh, when he gets into, like, the height of his usage. And so more than he can afford to buy. So around this time, uh, John Holmes meets Palestinian immigrant and L.A. nightclub kingpin uh, Adele Garib Nazarala, better known as Eddie Nash. Now, Eddie was a huge player in the... Do uh, you guys know uh, of Eddie Nash? Oh, sorry, that was like a weird... Oh, a weird name to go to from John Holmes. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you think like Eddie meets Frankie fucking Jing Jong. I don't know who a nightclub guy would be. <laughs> Frankie Necklace. Uh, but, but yeah, he meets Eddie Nash. And Eddie was like the godfather of the uh, Hollywood nightclub scene. He owned more clubs than anybody. He made a lot of money. He, he sold a lot of coke. Rumored to have ties with various kind of organized crime syndicates. Uh, he has a kind of interesting story. He arrived in like 1960 in L.A., opened up just a hot dog stand, and then kind of through hook and a lot of crook, uh, he evolved that into a uh, fucking empire by the 70s. Basically, like he had 36 liquor licenses uh, in Hollywood at the height of his kind of empire. So if you were out and you were partying in Hollywood in the 70s, you were putting money into Eddie Nash's pockets. And, and according to kind of a big L.A. Uh, nightclub 70s scenesters, like former Liberace boyfriend Scott Thorson, uh, there was a party at Nash's house seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And the way they talk about this is so foreign to me because I grew up in the, in the AIDS era where it's like, you know, of like, you know, like the 80s and 90s where it's like an orgy. You're like, well, I'm not fucking, my dick will explode. <laughs> like, there's no way. There's no way. No. Coke, I, no, my heart will explode. Like, there's just fear about all of this. They had none of this. Like, this house was just people fucking and doing Coke and whatever, like, literally around the clock, just seven days a week. And uh, that was kind of like, you know, Eddie's lifestyle. And when he got really into doing blow himself in the 70s, he wasn't even really managing his clubs. He was just having a party at his house. And uh, by 19, uh, and, he, and he like, oh, and he meets John Holmes and he loves him because he's like, cool. He's like the, the underground porn king. Uh, so Eddie likes John because John has a big dick, essentially. And John likes Eddie because Eddie has a lot of coke. So that's their kind of match. <laughs> and then by 1979, uh, John has gone from snorting coke to freebasing it. <laughs> right, right, which is never like, oh, that's a good decision. 
you never hear about somebody's like, you know, their life was going okay, but when they started freebasing coke, fucking up, up, up. Nothing but success after that. And I didn't really know what freebasing coke was before this. Uh, I thought it was the same thing as smoking crack. But little difference, I guess. Crack came a little later in the early 80s, and crack is basically two-thirds cocaine and a third, like, baking soda and some water to crystallize it. Uh, freebasing coke is actually worse in a way than smoking crack because it's just like smoking pure coke. And, and he got really into it. So this is, what, this is what John is doing now, and it starts affecting uh, you know, his career where he, if you snort enough coke and do enough coke, you can't get an erection. So, and I imagine like the bigger your dick is, uh, from what I've heard, uh, if, I only had, if I only had a giant dick to know this for sure. But, but I guess I would imagine it would, like, it would affect you sooner because you got more blood flow to kind of manage. So he can't get it up, and he wants to smoke uh, coke and not go to work anyway, so he starts missing shoots. Uh, his low point <laughs> came when they said that at one shoot, they couldn't find him when it was his scene. And they look around for him. Finally, like an hour later, they find him in a closet uh, just smoking or freebasing coke. Like he was carrying a briefcase of paraphernalia to freebase coke at that time so he could just smoke it wherever he happened to be. Like, that shows you how powerful cocaine is. Where, like, you can get to a place when somebody's like, hey, man, do you think we could pay you to fuck beautiful women? Uh, no. <laughs> I would rather hide in a closet and just smoke some more coke, if that's cool. <laughs> like, that's so insane that it's that powerful. Uh, I feel like if, like, you see those corny bumper stickers, like, I'd rather be fishing. Like, he would just have a bumper sticker, like, I'd rather be freebasing right now. Just more than anything. So now he starts to steal, as junkies do when they've reached this point. He steals from Sharon. Uh, he has no income. He's not making money doing porn. So he's, he's, he steals. I can't believe Sharon doesn't leave him at this point. Uh, he steals her jewelry. He starts selling things from around the house. He racks up $48,000 worth of credit card debt on their shared credit cards, which is fucking crazy in the, in the late 70s as well. I mean, it'd be crazy now, but even worse then. And uh, still doesn't leave him. He starts just kind of stealing things around town. Uh, the craziest kind of theft he did, which I thought was just such a dick move. That was not a, a pun that I intended at all. <laughs> That's just a word I use. After I said it, I'm like, God, everything was dick with this episode. Uh, he, he would go to LAX or, uh, uh, John, or what, Burbank, and he would just go to baggage claim and just take a bunch of luggage and leave again. Like, he would just steal this random people's baggage that showed up and then leave and then take it to a pawn shop and sell it for more Coke money. So if you've ever had baggage missing, well, probably someone sold it for Coke. That's what I deduce from that. And uh, he starts hanging out in uh, gay nightclubs in Hollywood at this point because he figured he could, like, you know, uh, lead gay men on. And because, you know, everybody had Coke at that time, and he would just kind of let them think he was going to have sex with them so that he would get Coke. And then that goes to he would actually just let them fuck him if they would give him coke. Uh, so he's, he's really, you know, going kind of uh, uh, bottomy now. And, if, and you would think that sucking dick... <laughs> Another... He's a bottom. He's, a pow he's power bottoming now. I totally missed that one as well. So you... you <laughs> You would think that uh, sucking dick for coke would be rock bottom. Uh, you'd be wrong. Uh, he, he does something even lower. He starts to pimp out his teenage girlfriend. Like as, if a, like, as if just having sex with her wasn't immoral enough. Now he's pimping her, and then he's mad at her for having sex with people, so now he's also beating her. So he's, just, he's, he's really kind of like padding his you know, shithead Hall of Fame resume at this point. Uh, 
and so at one point, apparently, he even uh, uh, sold her to Eddie Nash uh, for coke. And Eddie Nash was a supreme degenerate. Uh, the worst thing I read about him, and I hope this isn't true, but I feel like it was. And this is going to be really gross, but uh, I feel compelled to say it because that's what I feel like time suck is just no holds barred. Uh, he would, in his bathroom, he would not have toilet paper for his personal bathroom. And he would just take a shit, and then he would let young women lick his butt clean for coke. If you need a second to throw up in your mouth, that's fine. Oh, my God is correct. Yeah, so that's who Eddie Nash is, and uh, that's who John Holmes is. He's selling his, his teenage girl to this girl, so it, it just gets worse and worse. And then, so, basically with Eddie Nash, uh, he, he, he's gotten to this place, though, where Eddie Nash isn't just giving him coke for free. It's like his buddy, but he sells coke. He gets into debt, and eventually Eddie cuts him off. So now he needs to find a new coke dealer. That's where Wonderland comes in. Uh, this, this house, 8763 Wonderland Avenue, when he got cut off from Eddie Nash, like sometime in late 1980, um, he, he, he finds this house. He hears about it through kind of the junkie scene. It's this house. It's owned by 43-year-old Joy Miller, who's an affluent ex-wife of Beverly Hills attorney who'd recently become a heroin addict. And she just has this kind of party house in Laurel Canyon for heroin uh, junkies and coke addicts and kind of like petty criminals. And also living there is her boyfriend, 43-year-old Billy Deverell, a crane operator, small-time thief. Uh, also living there is David Lynn, a uh, 42-year-old career criminal, 36-year-old uh, coke dealer Ron Lanius, and 32-year-old petty thief Tracy McCourt. Uh, Ron Lanius was a Vietnam Air Force vet who had been dishonorably discharged and convicted of smuggling heroin from Vietnam back to the U.S. in the corpses uh, of American soldiers. So, yeah, fucking shady, dude. Dirty, dirty dude, yeah. David Lind is a biker, member of the Aryan Brotherhood, who by 1991 had been incarcerated uh, several times for armed burglary, forgery, assault, and rape. So, real class acts uh, hanging out at Wonderland. A uh, very rough crowd, and by 1981, Holmes is kind of mixed up with them. And he kind of has a similar but sadder relationship with them than he did with Eddie Nash. Eddie Nash thought he was cool, and he liked the novelty of this porn star. These guys liked the novelty of a porn star, but they didn't think he was cool. His career had already, already fallen apart by this point, and they would basically just make fun of him in front of other partygoers. He was just like a carnival freak act to them. Like, they would just, like, demand that he take his dick out and show it to other partygoers when he didn't want to. Like, he, they would, like, demean him. Things are very low for, for his life. Uh, not like he's a good dude anyway, but things are very low for him. And, uh... And he gets into kind of uh, trouble with them as well. Like, he's buying Coke initially. Then he gets into kind of debt with them. Then they cut him off. So he has, like, nowhere to go. So then he hears that these guys, they're doing various crimes around town. They've stolen these random antique guns. And they're having a hard time selling them because it's an easily traceable item. Well, he knows that Eddie Nash likes to collect odd things and has more kind of criminal kind of dealings than these guys. And he's like, hey, I'll get these guns sold into Eddie Nash in exchange for being back in your good graces so I can get more coke. Like, like literally everything in his life is about just coke at this point. And uh, so let's, let's get, okay, I guess I didn't really announce we're in timeline. We're going to get out of this timeline for the people listening at home and, and get into this stuff in more detail now. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, Time Suckers, time from a word from our second and final sponsor of the first ever live recording of Time Suck. Time Suck is brought to us by the Dollar Shave Club. Love me the Dollar Shave Razor. Love me some Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. So glad I made the smarter choice and switched over from whatever janky grocery store bullshit I was using before. I have a big bottle of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter at home uh, and a travel size bottle I take on the road. All right, and I have two executive handles and I get four stainless steel, six-blade cartridges shipped to my home 
every month automatically because if I had to remember to buy something every month, it just wouldn't happen. I know that about myself. I love not having to think about getting awesomeness just shipped to my door. Smoothest shave of my life. And my wife now will only use my razors to shave her face as well. Oh, it's so nice. Before Dollar Shave Club, she had a beard thick enough to make Zach Galifianakis jealous. She had like, I, w- I would say it was like a ZZ Top type look she was rocking for when I met her. Uh, no, of course not. She uses it on her on her legs and she uses it on her armpits and she loves it. And I use it on my armpits as well because that's how me likes it. I love, I love myself a smooth pit. And that's what I get with the Dollar Shave Club. So switch over. Make the smarter choice. Go to dollarshaveclub.com. Get a great shave at a great price. Conveniently deliver right to your door. Don't buy a cheap disposable razor. Give yourself a cheap shave. Right? Life is too short for razor burn. Use Dr. Carver's shave butter and get a precise shave that helps prevent ingrown hairs and fights razor bumps. For a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver's shave butter for only 5 bucks with free shipping. After that, razor just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for five bucks. Uh, in your first month's box, you get an awesome, weighty handle. I can attest to that. It's fantastic. A full cassette of four cartridges and a tube of their shave butter. And after your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. No hidden fees, no commitments. Cancel anytime you like. You can get uh, this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash timesuck. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash time suck and now back to the hollywood improv so it's 1981 john holmes once america's most famous porn star has had his career derailed by coke uh he's stolen uh, from his estranged wife to buy coke stolen from other porn stars Uh, he did that as well like when they weren't home he would know they weren't home he would go and just take everything that wasn't nailed down he's pimped himself out for coke he's pimped out and beaten his teenage mistress he's stealing luggage from the airport he's just a fucking dirtbag Uh, He's been cut off from numerous Coke dealers. He's still friendly with Eddie Nash. Uh, Eddie Nash has a lot of Coke and a lot of money. He has neither. And so, you know, he comes up with the worst idea of his life to kind of involve the Wonderland gang in this situation with Eddie Nash. And uh, and basically what he does with the gun thing, the antique gun thing is when he went to Eddie Nash to sell the antique guns, Eddie Nash just took them and didn't give him any money because he was in debt to him for previous kind of Coke debts. So now he's fucked over with the Wonderland guys. Now he's taken their guns, given it to a guy who's not giving him coke, and now, th- now he owes those guys even more. So now, like, these guys kind of want to kill him. Eddie Nash doesn't really want anything to do with him. And so he's desperate for coke. And this worst idea is he knows that Eddie has a lot of money. And he knows that these guys are criminals. And some of the things they've done previously is do this um, fake stings where they'll have, like, a fake police badge. And like I said earlier, they'll go, you know, bust some other coke dealer. So he's like, well, this is the biggest bust. So he tells them that he'll go to Eddie Nash's house, and he'll leave, like, a door kind of unlocked. And then he'll go back to the Wonderland house, let them know. They'll show up, pretend to be fake police officers. They'll take, you know, he knows where the safe is. And and, and apparently there's, like, a million dollars, roughly, worth of coke and money and jewels and the antique guns and all this kind of stuff in this house. Well, it works initially. Like, he does that. He parties with Eddie Nash. He goes back to the Wonderland house. He tells them... And this is now on uh, June 28th, 1981, is when he goes to Eddie Nash's house. He goes back the next morning, the morning of June 29th. Uh, about 8 a.m., the guys uh, finally leave uh, for Nash's house. Uh, Ten minutes later, they're robbing Nash. Uh, Nash had a huge bodyguard, uh, this, like, 300-pound martial artist, uh, this uh, Gregory Dials. They tie both of those guys up. You know, there's a surprise by it. 
take all the stuff and then go back to Wonderland. And now they're just like celebrating, and apparently they were being very stupid. They were just telling everybody who would listen about this amazing like bus they just got. So word gets back to Eddie Nash. Uh, he somehow uh, puts it together that John Holmes might have had something to do with this, and he goes after John Holmes. And now there's kind of two different stories. Uh, this. Some think that John Holmes uh, was pissed off at the Wonderland guys because when he went back uh, after that, when, when the guys brought back all the money, he thought he was going to get a cut of that. They didn't give him a cut of that. They were pissed about the antique guns from earlier, so now they consider themselves even, and they just gave him like a bag of Coke and thought, we're good. He thought he would get more money, so now he's pissed at them. So some people think that he went back to Eddie Nash and kind of ratted these guys out because he was pissed they made fun of him, and he was pissed that they you know, didn't give him more money, which I don't know how you uh, sell that. Like, hey, <laughs> I know I told these guys to rob you, but they were supposed to give me a lot of money for it, and you're a businessman, and you get that. I, I personally believe <laughs> that uh, the, the more likely version of the story where Eddie Nash finds out through his little fucking connections that John Holmes has something to do with it, they go pick John up, they bring John uh, uh, you know, to his house and basically beat him until he tells them where the Wonderland people are. And then, uh, none of this was proven in court totally, but what everybody thinks happened is uh, John Holmes goes back, leads these guys to the Wonderland house, you know, because he knows, like, the little gate code. He can buzz them in, like, hey, guys, if John let me in, he lets these guys in, and then they just fucking beat these people to death uh, with a lead pipe. And if you're very uh, dark and curious, uh, you can watch the crime scene footage on YouTube. I don't really recommend it. Uh, pretty disturbing, but it was, like, the first crime scene ever recorded with video. And so you just see it doesn't, it doesn't look real. It's like th these guys were not fucking around. Like, they were taking home run swings uh, on these people's skulls. Like, they were just caved in. Uh... I don't know a lot. I don't have a lot to compare that to. It's not like, you know, usually when someone beats somebody over the head with a lead pipe, it's, like a, it's more of like a dent. Like suddenly that's a weird area I'm an expert in. But it looked excessive. Uh, and so, and what's crazy about the, uh, the crime also is no one, uh, they heard the screams, the neighbors heard the screams, uh, but no one called the police for like 12 hours when a mover next door finally heard moaning. And they didn't call the police because these people were partying all the time. And they were just, like, used to people screaming over there. And then, I know this is, it's, it's dark, but it was very funny to me. They also didn't call the police because some of the neighbors believed that what was going on there was uh, primal scream therapy. I, I don't know if you've heard of this. Uh, primal scream therapy, I'll describe what it is here. It is, uh, actually, incidentally, uh, Arthur Janov, the psychologist who invented primal scream therapy, just passed away this past Monday, uh, October 2nd, 93 years old. And uh, it involved having people relive their early traumatic memories by regressing to infancy, early childhood, in order to confront and exercise demons. They would go to uh, this guy's therapy place and go to, like, a crib, like a, like a crib for an adult, and they would wear little kid clothes, and they would just think about childhood stuff and scream really loud. And he made thousands of dollars doing that, and he's probably going to have the loudest funeral of all time here in a couple days. <laughs> it's fucking insane. He was an utter lunatic. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that is so, like, fucked up, but also, like, I don't know if it, it's funny. There's, there's something darkly funny about it. These people, like, they're screaming for their lives, and people are like, oh, they're just working some shit out. <laughs> L.A. was so weird in the, yeah, still is, but in the early 80s especially, so. So then, so after all this happens, uh, 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 <laughs> you would think that John and Eddie and everybody were brought to trial and found guilty, right? But no, no, they were not. John was arrested shortly after the killings, 
uh, Wonderland gang member David Lynn was not one of the people in the home. He knew that John Holmes was the guy who told him to go to Nash. He told the police that. Police arrest John Holmes. And John initially wanted to do a, uh, a plea bargain. He wanted immunity, and he wanted him, Sharon, and Don to go live together in witness protection because he's a maniac. And Sharon, to her credit, was like, fuck that. No, there's, <laughs> that's too much. That's finally too much. And uh, so she wouldn't do that. He was worried about her being killed. So then he rejects the plea deal. And then he just takes off. He takes Don, and they go to Florida, and they just hide out. Now, uh, as he leaves, a murder warrant is put out for John's arrest. He goes to Florida, where he pimps Don out again for coke, because that's what he does. Finally, Don gets the strength to uh, run away from him and leave, calls the police, tells him what hotel or motel John is staying at, has him arrested. He's brought back to L.A. He's put on trial. And the case against him was built largely on two pieces of evidence. Uh, it was admission that Holmes allegedly made to L.A. police detective Frank Tomlinson after his arrest in Miami in December 1981, and a bloody palm print left by Holmes on the rail of the bed of one of the victims, Ron Lanius, the one who had made fun of him, uh, where it looked like somebody was grabbing it, possibly for leverage, while swinging a pipe. Like, it looked pretty bad. Uh, but he is found not guilty uh, uh, of the crimes because there's no, I guess, essentially no eyewitnesses. No one is actually there to come to the court and say, I saw him do it for sure. And he claimed, yeah, maybe I was there, uh, he actually never testified during his own trial, but previously, like, yes, but I didn't have anything to do with it. And he, and he kind of said two things. He would say either he was there and had nothing to do with it or that he let them in but then left. And, and that does not kind of hold up because then later, and I don't know why this wasn't admissible in court, but Sharon, his wife, said that the morning after it happened, John showed up at her place covered in blood, like completely covered in blood. Uh, she gave him a bath, like changed his clothes, and he... <laughs> Because she's a mom. She, she, mom's, mom being a mom. Mom taking care of her weird husband's son. She's going to clean him up and she's going to do his laundry like a good person. Uh, no, but she, she, I guess, you know, like cleaned him up. And then he just told her flat out that he is like, he's like, I saw four people killed tonight. And somehow that doesn't get him convicted of anything. And he also, when he went to Dawn later that day, his other weird wife situation, he told her that he'd also witnessed the murders. And again, nothing happens to him. Um, so, so he, he, he gets off, uh, when the trial is over and he wants to start a new life with Sharon. Uh, she doesn't want it to her credit. Uh, Dawn has literally left the country during the trial. She's went to Thailand. Uh, she's living there with her dad who is now running a hotel there. And, uh, John goes back into porn cause that's what you do. Uh, and now he's making 300 bucks instead of a thousand bucks. The golden era is gone. And his first shoot, he meets Lori Rose, AKA Misty Dawn, uh, a woman known as the butt queen. That was her title. Which I, I imagine would be a point of pride within the industry. Like, like how you rationalize things. Like if you're going to do it, like you don't want to be like the butt, like, I don't know, bronze medalist or whatever. Like you're going to be the, the top. So she was really into that. And uh, <laughs> uh, so they fall in love or lust or something. They get married. John's so into drugs at this point, uh, Coke and now Valium, that he literally, I guess, uh, a week after they were married, just was surprised that they were married. That's what another friend <laughs> said. Like, he saw pictures, and he's like, what? We went to Vegas? We got married? He had no idea, apparently. And then, uh, uh, instead of going on a honeymoon, John decides to get AIDS instead. That was a weird choice that he made. Yeah, which I'm not surprised with all the things he's doing, like, if anyone. And after everything, it's kind of hard to feel bad. Like, he's such a fucking degenerate. Not that you wish that, but it's like, well, yeah. If you're fucking doing, like, blow constantly and just putting your dick anywhere someone will give you cocaine for it, Probably going to get AIDS in, in, the, in the early mid-80s. 
And so uh, he was such a piece of shit, he gets banned from doing porn in the U.S., but in Europe they don't know, so he goes to Europe knowing he has AIDS and films more porn. And if your fetish is watching porn with people who definitely have AIDS, you can find the videos. I hope that's not your thing. That would be so weird if one person was like, fuck yeah! And then just got real quiet. But that is... There's... Uh, Cicilina, Cicilonia, it's C-I-C-I-L-O-I-N-A, famous Italian porn star from the 80s. He filmed with her. No, luckily, she didn't get it. So that part's good. Uh, he died of a cardiac arrest related to AIDS at the age of 43 back in L.A., March 13, 1988. What happened to the rest of the people? Uh, Nash was investigated for the murders as well a little bit later. Police initially couldn't pin a murder charge on him, but they found a lot of coke uh, in his home, and so they got him on some drug charges, sentenced him to eight years, uh, according to uh, feds later, he bribed uh, a judge with 100 grand, got a sentence reduced to two years. So he was pretty slick. And this is even slicker. Uh, in 1990, he was charged with conspiring to have the Wonderland murders committed. Uh, a jury deadlocked 11 to 1 in favor of him being guilty. The one person that said no, they found out later, he gave her money as well. Like he for sure bribed her. Uh, got out of it. They did a, a new trial. They found him not guilty. So apparently he bribed additional people. And then finally in 1999, he's charged with racketeering for various gang activity, uh, and the Wonderland killings are again somehow added to his indictment in some way. Uh, he makes a plea deal, and he gets two years. So he got two years uh, when he's an elderly anyway for having four people beat to death with a pipe. So I guess if you have money, uh, you, can, you, can, you can do some shit. And this motherfucker is still alive in, in the L.A. area today. He's, he's 88 years old and living somewhere in suburban L.A., uh, I couldn't find uh, exactly where, but apparently, you know, he's still, I don't know, probably probably has a nurse he has a strange deal with to clean his bottom and, <laughs> and you know, and well, that's Eddie Nash. That's just Nash being Nash, guys. That's classic Eddie, you know? That's uh, Nash's bodyguard, Gregory Diles, who was likely directly involved in the Wonderland killings. He died in 1995 of liver failure. Sharon remained in the L.A. area, continuing to work as the pediatric nurse. So that was cool. Uh, never remarrying. She died in Haines, California, by Ventura, uh, October 28, 2012, at the age of 69. Uh, when she died, apparently home skeleton crawled out just for a second to go, 69, and then just went back. Uh, is that what he would do? Uh, then there's the two... <laughs> Then there's the two Wonderland gang members who helped Rob Nash but weren't killed, Tra David Lind, uh, Tracy McCourt. David Lind testified at Holmes' trial, put, was put into the witness protection program. He was afraid of retribution from Nash. And he, he reportedly died of a heroin overdose in the Bay Area in 95. And then the other guy went to Colorado, uh, was apparently in the Colorado you know, prison system for most of the rest of his life, dying of unknown causes in 2006. What about teenage mistress Dawn? Uh, afraid for her life in the U.S. during Holmes' trial. You know, she went up to Thailand, like we said. Struggled with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, severe depression, but managed to earn a degree in gemology, which is, you know, a weird degree, but a degree nonetheless. <laughs> she, got, she got it at the Asian Institute of Gemological Sciences, which sounds like a place I would just like to hang out at for a day. <laughs> just take it all in. Uh, <laughs> She returns to L.A. in 1988, two weeks before John succumbs to AIDS. Uh, doesn't visit him, but I guess gets closure in a weird way. She re reunited with Sharon, remained close with Sharon, uh, her weird kind of mom, sister, I don't know. <laughs> 
I guess they both, you know, had survived John Holmes. And uh, she worked in the legal profession in downtown L.A. for five years, paralegal and local county librarian for another four, leaves California, goes to the Pacific Northwest, attends Eastern Oregon University, earns an undergraduate degree in communication and gender studies in 2012, graduates summa cum laude, fucking awesome. Yeah, like, like fucking good for her, right? It gets even better. Uh, she gets a full tuition teaching fellowship and taught women's studies and activism at Oregon State University, where she completed her Master of Arts in Women's Studies in 2016, founded a nonprofit organization called Esteem, empowering successful teens through education, awareness, and mentoring, an organization dedicated to assisting teens who are struggling to find a safe and successful path to adulthood. She also developed Mirrors of Me Girls Art Writing and Mentoring Camp for at-risk and marginalized youth, and she has a beautiful daughter she has kept far away from the childhood she had. So fucking good for Dawn. She published a book about her early life uh, called The Road Through Wonderland, Surviving John Holmes. You can get the 2010 edition on Amazon with a foreword by Val Kilmer, uh, who played John Holmes in the 2003 movie Wonderland, which isn't bad. I watched it for this episode. It's all right. Uh, it's no fucking tombstone. It's no no Doc Holiday, but you know. Well, not uh, not everyone is impressed with Don's life accomplishments. Uh, rather than see her life as an example of overcoming an extreme amount of early adversity, and then doing something extraordinary, they choose to be idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. 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 So this <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yeah, these are just some extreme low lives. This is uh, uh, unbelievable to me. After, I watched a video about the life of John Holmes uh, called, the, it was like the YouTube, like the, the E! True Hollywood Story YouTube video. And user Crimson Rush, after watching this, uh, says, Dawn has to be the stupidest woman in the history of humanity. Again, before I go further, uh, just to remind, you know, 15. 15 when it started. Uh, did she make good choices? No, at that point. Who does at 15, right? Like, was she a 15-year-old who parents obviously were not at the top of their parenting game? Uh, let her live with America's most famous porn star? Uh, yes, she was that. User, uh, YouTube user Jamie Van Kirk tries to chime in with some reason, which never works in these threads. Uh, he says, read her book. She was just a kid when her dad basically just gave her into his care. He took advantage of her for sure. Someone said on the Wonderland Murder website that you can read it online for free now. Check it out if you haven't already. Good read. Right? That's a nice thing to come back with. Not too mean. Well, then a soulless fucking shit dumpster of a human. <laughs> Lynn Purcell, this fucking piece of shit, chimes in with Jamie Van Kirk. Why would I waste any time reading her book? He took advantage of her? Come on now. She willingly stayed with a cokehead, abusive piece of shit. This is the kicker. She's as disgusting as he was. Are you fucking crazy? As disgusting as he was. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, okay. On one side, let's think about this argument. On one side, you have a coked up, manipulative porn star in his 30s who molests a 15-year-old and then proceeds to introduce her to coke pimps her out, beats her on a regular basis, a guy who helped four people get murdered if he didn't help murder them himself, a guy who willingly risked other people for AIDS. That's one side of the equally disgusting arguments. And then on the other side is you have Don, which you said, who overcame all of this abuse to go fucking create, like, mentoring camps, to go, like, get her, like, fucking masters and all this shit. Like, which of those people are more disgusting? Like, in, in a moment like that, uh, with Lynn, I have the worst thoughts when I think of something. Like, there's a dark part of me that when I read that, I wanted a pimp to find Lynn Purcell. <laughs> and I wanted him to beat the shit out of her. 
and put her on the streets for like a couple of years and get her addicted to coke and like more beating, more pimping. And then I wanted her to be brought to me and I wanted to ask her, so who do you think is more disgusting right now, the pimp or you? Like who, who, which side of the, is, are you as equally disgusting as the pimp who just, be, or maybe more disgusting? Like I just don't fucking understand where people come up with these kind of judgments. So uh, Lynn Purcell uh, uh, gets uh, James, this guy, Jamie Van Kirk, tries to reason again with her. He says, Lynn Purcell, you don't have to read the book, but it was good. Her dad left her with him. She was homeless, and she was under 18, I think 14 at the time she met him. She may have been uh, when she met him. He was in his 30s, so yes, he took advantage 100%. Uh, Lynn Purcell still not having it. She says, you don't have to be 21 to realize that when a man is beating the shit out of you on and off, you should leave. But no, stay and then try to profit from writing a book. I disagree with your logic. Like, I fucking love this kind of stupidity where, like, this person is thinking, like, like as if Dawn was 16 sucking a stranger's dick because she got pimped out by her abusive boyfriend. And she, in her back of her mind, she's like, this is terrible now, but... When I'm in my 40s, I'm going to make so much fucking book money that this will all be worth it. Like, it's such a ridiculous idiot. So fuck you, Lynn Purcell. Uh, <laughs> user Starquant uh, says something that I would like to say at this point. He says, no more stupid than you were at 15, you judgmental creep. This is to Lynn. She wasn't a woman. She was a child just as you are now. Uh, exactly. And then another user uh, shows himself to even be more hateful than Lynn. Uh, user Red Rum types, she was a junkie bitch and got what she deserved. Who the fuck? Like, who are, why? Why is there just, like, so much just fucking, so much evil? Um, I, could, I tried to find these people. Whenever I look this stuff up, I always click on their usernames, and I want to find out if I can link to their, like, selfie videos to get more info. I wasn't able to find Lynn. I wasn't able to find Red Rum, but I was able to find Crimson Rush, the initial guy. And I just want to share this in my own spiteful way because if anyone happens to like this fucking, he's exactly what I pictured him to be. He's he's, and I say unmarried. I just didn't see the ring. He's unmarried, like unattractive, creepy-looking, sixty-ish bald white dude who posts videos of himself playing cover songs on his guitar, and he's always alone. <laughs> That's the guy judging this fifteen-year-old girl. I'm like, fucking, of course you are. Uh, I, I just think I, I, I always have an especially like uh, uh, a different level of hate for elderly hateful people. Like I figure like you get a pass when you're 15 for being a troll, but if you're like 65 and you're trolling YouTube, just fucking grab a hammer and hit yourself in the face as hard as you can. <laughs> like there's no reason for you to be around anymore. So keep on fighting the good fight, Don. Ignore these idiots of the internet. Okay, so I guess, like, conclusions on this kind of episode, uh, I think what we learned is, like, through Dawn is, like, you can overcome so much. Like, I'm always amazed by the human spirit in kind of cases like that, where it's like, you know, we all have our rough days and everything, but I, I doubt statistically anyone in this room had, had a, a three-year stretch as rough as Dawn's, <laughs> and she just, like, overcame that to do so much, so that's cool. I think the other lesson is uh, easy on the coke. I think easy on the coke, right? Maybe no on the coke. Maybe not at all, maybe not at all on the coke. And uh, before we leave the improv tonight, let's take five more looks back at today's tale with some top five takeaways. Time's up. Top five takeaways. Number one, the average penis length is just over five inches long. 
to be clear, erect. John Holmes had eight and a half more inches than that. A ruler was not big enough to measure his dick. I just, I can't even fathom that. Okay, number two, the Wonderland murders occurred in 1981, and we still don't know who beat those people to death, for sure with a lead pipe. Uh, however, we do know for sure that in 1981, Michael motherfucking McDonald, Triple M, <laughs> was busy writing songs for his debut solo album, if that's what it takes, featuring the unforgettable hit, I keep forgetting I'm not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. Some people are going to be so fucking pissed off right now, listening. For, I would say for every eight people who are like, no, oh, it's funny. There's two people like, dude, it's been a fucking old joke for six months now. Please stop it. Okay, number three. Uh, a lot of people watch porn in actual theaters in the 1970s. How weird is that? And why does anyone still do it? There is still one in L.A., uh, at least one that shows straight porn uh, and gay porn. Um, it's the Tiki Theater. I don't know if you've seen that. It's on Santa Monica and just off of the intersection of Santa Monica and Western. <laughs> it has some of the best Yelp reviews I have ever read in my life. It's so great. It has a three-star Yelp rating based on 12 Yelp reviews. User Didi gave it one star in 2015. She said, I'll make this short. 14 bucks to get in for a four-hour limit. Two pornos playing at the same time. One on a huge projector screen, the other on a television. Very dark and dingy and nut loads all over the seats. <laughs> Do not sit down. My friend made me, and I felt really filthy. <laughs> Go at your own risk. I love that her friend made her sit down. I just picture this weird scene. She's like, but there's nut loads all over the seats. Sit down, Dee Dee. <laughs> sit down in the nut load. <laughs> now, user Jenny gave it five stars. <laughs> this is my favorite thing I've read in a while. She gave it five stars in 2014. I swear to God, this is a direct quote. You can look it up right if you want right now on Yelp. She says, I had, a good old, <laughs> I had a good old time here. Although it was mostly gay men cruising for guys, I was able to find enough bi or straight guys who enjoyed watching the straight porn flick that was playing while I played with myself and a few of them. Good times! Exclamation point. <laughs> ah, good for you, Jen. What a good time gal. What a good time gal. I love that you would just go jerk off a bunch of dudes in a porn theater and then be like, you know what? I gotta put this on Yelp. I gotta let people know. <laughs> uh, number four, don't steal from Eddie Nash unless you don't mind the possibility of getting your skull caved in by metal pipe. Uh, maybe 88 now, but I'm guessing he still doesn't fucking play around. Because uh, the Wonderland killings were just a few of the killings he was suspected of uh, ordering during the course of his life. And number five, new info. LAPD Detective Tom Lang was the lead detective on the Wonderland killings. Uh, and if you recognize that name, he was also the lead detective on the O.J. Simpson uh, uh, murder trial. So he's either the unluckiest or the fucking worst detective <laughs> in the history of the LAPD. <laughs> Two obvious fucking crimes. He's like, ah, I think... I don't know. Time sucks. Top five takeaways. So that's it. I hope you guys had fun. I hope you guys had so much fun. Uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for making this a fun show to do. 
Uh, I'll be up tonight for a long time, uh, getting tomorrow's suck uh, ready, the bonus one. And uh, so please just keep telling your friends. I hope we can do more live shows. And let's end this on a, 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 a two things. Let's do a Hail Nimrod. One, two, three. Hail Nimrod! And let's end on the other words we end every show with. One, two, three. Keep on sucking! Thank you guys very much. All right, time suckers. I hope you enjoyed that. That was the live show. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if I made made some mistakes on there. You know, I, I I had my notes with me as I always do, but I but I wasn't looking at them as much as I do when I record privately because you know there's an audience there. So uh, I, I felt like I remembered the show well enough to keep the facts straight in my head. I hope you uh, agreed, and, and if I didn't, I'm sure I'll hear about it. A uh, quick note to be clear: I I don't want Lynn Purcell to actually be pimped and beaten. I only said that to illustrate that if, uh, you know, what happened to Don happened to her, I seriously doubt she would be so judgmental, uh, judgmental of a 15-year-old victim. Uh, show was a blast. I-, I really hope we can keep spreading the suck so that in 2018 I can do a proper tour of Time Suck in addition to continuing uh, to tour doing stand-up. All right, a couple things. Uh, uh, um, speaking of touring, actually, I will be in Portland, Oregon at the Helium Comedy Club this weekend. Come on, Portland. Always had a fun time there. Let's do it. October 12th through 14th. Uh, also this weekend, uh, I'll be at Parlor Live in Bellevue, Washington, one night only on October 15th. And that'll be a Bananas uh, Comedy Club in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, October 20th and 21st. Funny Bone in Dayton, Ohio, November 2nd through the 5th. The Spokane Comedy Club in Spokane, Washington, right where it all started for me, November 9th through the 11th. And, uh, and I'll get the dates up for December and early 2018 added soon. Uh, you know, Grand Rapids, uh, uh, Michigan, St. Louis, Missouri, a bunch of other places coming up. Be all over the place. Check the episode description for times and ticket links. Now, uh, next week on Time Suck, we are going to go dark. Uh, I was going to go in a different direction. I didn't want to say it was because I want people to be disappointed that they didn't get that if they, if they wanted it next week. Uh, I just came across a dude I'd never heard of before through a Time Suck suggestion, and he is fascinating in a horrific way. Uh, he's a monster. He's a fucking monster. Andre uh, Chikatilo, the butcher of Rostov, the Red Ripper, a Russian psychopath I had never heard of who haunted the streets of the Soviet Union for 12 years between 1978 and 1990. He was a teacher. He was a married father of two, and he would be charged with 53 horrific murders. And he looks like the kind of guy who killed over 50 people. Looks like a demon. This is no Ted Bundy, you know, uh, manipulating people with his charm and good looks. This guy looks exactly like the kind of guy who would kill a bunch of people. And he just uh, he he's a fucking demon who was in the flesh. He, he was uh, executed. Thank God. Um, <laughs> if you're anti-capital punishment, uh, just in general, listen to this guy's story. Might change your mind. Might change your mind. Uh, been a minute since we did a serial killer and, and my morbid fascination with these pieces of shit uh, just needed a fix. And so on Monday... It's going to get one. Uh, special thanks to Errol at the Improv uh, in Hollywood for recording this week's live show. Thanks to Time Sucker Tim Wilson for suggesting uh, uh, today's topic. And I know a few other Time Suckers did as well. Uh, email topic choices into bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Uh, if you don't mind, it's the best way to ensure getting credit. Sometimes in the chaos of keeping the show moving right now, a social media topic suggestions uh, get lost in the shuffle. Uh, big thanks to Time Sucker superstar Sydney Shives for keeping track of all the email topics. And another big thanks to Time Sucker uh, and editor Jesse uh, Dobner. Uh, I said Dobner. It is Dobner for cleaning up this week's show before I perform it. Big help. And thanks to all of you who follow the show on social media at Time Suck Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Social media. Uh, uh, it has an awesome new look right now. Uh, thanks to Danger Brain 
Sebastian at Danger Brain. He's a creative mastermind, and I love the evolution of the logo. Uh, hopefully you'll notice that right now, and you'll see it in your uh, podcast feed. That is Sebastian's work. The previous two logos, still still a part of the Time Suck logo family forever. Uh, still going to do you know merch at some points with uh, those versions as well. It's just fun to have an awesome new look. Uh, I've, been, I've been a fan of Danger Brain long before uh, I ever even thought about doing Time Suck. So, so, so happy to be working with them now. Can't wait to get some uh, Danger Brain products in the Time Suck store. And if you need graphic uh, branding, like graphic design, you know, branding, uh, just design work, logo, illustration work done, go to DangerBrain.com. Work with the best, man. Uh, link in the episode description for them as well. And, and thanks for all the interest in becoming a space lizard when the Time Suck app comes out. Uh, that's so nice, you guys. Hoping that happens in early December. As soon as I get an official launch date, it will be announced for sure. A new website will, be, will accompany the new app for those of you who don't use smartphones and don't use apps for things like that. You can still be a space lizard. Uh, and thanks for the recent PayPal donations and Amazon purchases made via timesuckpodcast.com. Doing that and continuing to buy Timesuck t-shirts and hats helps so much. So much. Uh, as do the iTunes ratings. Uh, I'll figure out how to get some uh, more products soon. Love you guys. The feedback you give me truly keeps this DIY independent project moving ahead. And all right, let's catch up on some previous episodes now and recent happenings in the suck world uh, with some time sucker updates. Madam Moselle, let us <laughs> let's get this shit out of the way right now. I know I referenced it in the last show. Dear God. I am an idiot. Uh, turns out, I don't know anything about French. In the Amelia Earhart episode, I questioned the spelling of an early female aviator's name. Uh, it was M-L-L-E. And then I said, like, well, who was named Mull? You know, P. Van uh, Pottlesburg de la Poterie. She does have way too many fucking names. Can we agree on that? Uh, I was like, you know, again, you know, who spells her name that way? Well, it turns out no one does. Uh, it's, the, <laughs> it's the abbreviation for Madame Mosdell which is the French word for Mrs., uh, denote, you know, denoting a young and or unmarried woman. So just like, you know, no one is named Mrs. that same way, you know, with uh, or at least if they are named Mrs., uh, they don't write it out M-R-S. Uh, or, you know, I guess, no, I'm sorry, it'd be Ms. would be the proper one, uh, the proper correlation. So no, like, you know, no one's no one goes by the name of M-S, I don't think, and no one goes by the name of M-L-L-E. So Time Suckers Kirk uh, Withrow. Uh, David Yisback, Brandon Lightly, Nick Klein, Sam Schmuel, or Sam, yeah, Sam, Sam Schmuel, uh, John Bowden, John Hasty, uh, Livy Pelham, Kent Villanueve, fucking whatever your name is. <laughs> I didn't have a pronunciation guide for it. And so many others let me know that I was a dumb dumb. Uh, so now I know, right? And just like, uh, just like I know how uh, Genome is not Gino anymore. I will never forget. So, so thank you for that. Mademoiselle. M-L-L-E. Also, Las Vegas. Let's talk about that, man. Uh, obviously, some horrific, horrific shit happened there recently. Um, and uh, some time suckers I met at the show uh, just this you know, past uh, Thursday night. I talked to them about it. I talked to uh, Steve and Amanda McLaughlin, and they just sent an email about how the response to it really made them extremely proud of their city. And I've heard this from other people as well. A nice positive thing to focus on in this extremely negative situation. They wrote in saying, dearest Reverend Dr. Suckmaster General, just wanted to drop you a line about last night's devastating shooter attack here in Las Vegas. My wife and I were celebrating our first anniversary, and we just happened to be on the strip when shit went sideways. At first, we thought it was just a bad car accident with the way the police were cordoning off the street. Nope. SWAT team showed up. And we knew things were going down fast. Hundreds of our fellow strip goers were ushered in the Excalibur Casino, and then were placed. And we were placed on lockdown for six hours while police cleared the scene. I just wanted to relay that I've never been a party to the times that humanity has stepped up for each other until last night. 
and it was pretty goddamn awe-inspiring. Although we were only giving water and blankets and giving two conference rooms and hallways to rest in, we personally saw so many strangers giving comfort to others that didn't know where their friends and family were or were at the music festival and ran from the automatic gunfire and watched their friends and family get shot, just complete strangers helping one another get through this mayhem. Anyway, that fucked hard is taking the long dirt nap, and life will hopefully go on for those affected. The first responders here were incredible. We'll see you at the live taping on Thursday. Keep on sucking best. Stephen, Amanda McLaughlin. Uh, yeah, so so thank you guys for that update. That is so good to hear about, you know, uh, a horrible, horrible event, but bringing out the best in other people. And also, uh, another time sucker from Corona, California, let me know that a local veteran uh, was killed in the Vegas uh, shooting by the name of Chris Royball. Uh, he was a dog handler in the Navy who served in Afghanistan, and the shooter left his family without a father. He has a GoFundMe page uh, set up. It's the Chris Royball Family Relief Fund link in the episode description. Man, uh, fuck, man, such a such a tragic event. So many so many lives uh, torn apart by that stupid motherfucker, uh, whose name I don't even feel like mentioning right now. Uh, and then you know, and this brings up obviously there was a lot of I got a lot of emails about like gun control in general about doing a suck on it, which we will eventually. Um, and like, what do we do about it? And you know, I wish I knew, man. I wish I knew. I don't. It's a really, really tricky issue, and people who try to make it very simple, I, I, I think they're being very overly simplistic because it's not. It's like, you know, do we get rid of automatic assault rifles? Uh, I think probably we do. I think a bump stock taking a semi-automatic to full automatic is, is probably too much, but would that really change anything? I'm not so sure. The guy in Vegas shot for roughly 10 minutes if he had only a semi-automatic rifle, you know, I, I would he have killed those people? Maybe. Would he have just pulled the, you know, the trigger a lot faster and killed the same amount? I, I, I don't know. And, and also, if we take away full auto capability, where do we stop after that? Do we, do we then get rid of semi-automatic rifles? What about rifles in general? What about all guns? You know, every time you know, people are shot in a situation like this, and I know this was the worst one uh, of its kind, but you know, the argument can be made that they'd still be alive, obviously, if the shooter didn't have access to a gun. An automatic rifle can kill more people than a semi-automatic rifle, and a semi-automatic rifle can kill more than a regular rifle. And a regular rifle can kill more than someone who doesn't have a rifle. So what's acceptable? Is a public shooting acceptable if only one person is shot? What about five, 10, 50? What number is unacceptable? And if guns are taken away, will mass killings go away? That's another thing. I mean, or will another form of weaponry just be used? You know, that's an argument I don't hear very often and, and one that I think we have to really look at at the end of the day. You know, I don't believe guns are truly the problem. I believe homicidal maniacs with guns are the fucking problem. Will taking away their guns take away mass murder or will they just find some other means to their end? You know, will they will they then just use a, a homemade chemical fertilizer bond? Do we have to take away chemical fertilizer then? You know, will they will they poison you know a, a water supply? You know, uh, will they you know set a fire? You know, in a, in a crowded building and, and close off the doors? You know, there is a lot of different ways to kill a lot of different people, and and I and I don't know, but I but I what to do about this? But I do know we need to think more about the issue. Uh, you know, sadly, like a lot of you, I I, I don't have time. Uh, right now, right today, to properly research this issue with the other workload I have and form an educated opinion. But someday I will. Someday we will suck on gun control and we'll, we will talk about it as the cult of the curious. Okay, lighten things up a little bit. Let's, uh, let's get to a quick Heaven's Gate update. Uh, Lee Bowman, several other time suckers, let me know uh, why the Heaven's Gate members who killed themselves all had $5.75 in their pockets. Uh, time sucker Corey League actually emailed one of the remaining cult members like I did for the episode, and they got back to him. 
and this is really cool, actually, I think. Uh, um, so this, this is the update. He, uh, Corey says, I messaged the representatives saying I was interested in the Heaven's Gate cult and that I had been studying it profusely and reading a lot of documents, but my only question was why did they carry 575? Well, they replied with, quote, over the decade when group members went out to jobs, they would take a $5 bill with them to cover the vagrancy laws of the states they were in. The three quarters were for calling back to the house. We used pay phones in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Each member symbolically took their ID, $5 and three quarters, 575, and checked out, quote unquote, within the quote there, of the house. It wasn't for a silly interplanetary toll. It was a humorous way to tell us they had all left the planet permanently. We know this may sound like dark humor to someone from the outside, but we knew what it meant. The ID also served to help the police with identification later. And then Corey says, keep on sucking, man. If you want me to message this to you on a different platform, just let me know. I just thought you and the other suckers on board should be aware. Well, that is pretty fucking awesome, Corey. Uh, and it makes me like the Heaven's Gate people a little more. I got to say, they, they, they may be my favorite cult, man. If you're going to willingly kill yourself in a mass suicide, why not have a sense of humor about it? <laughs> like, uh, and here's why I like the Heaven's Gate guys in a, in a weird way. They didn't abuse members. Marshall Applewhite, he wasn't fucking anyone in the ass, literally, like Jim Jones was. He wasn't manipulating young women like Charles Manson was into doing horrific, you know, murders and, and staying with him in his whole, like, pimp vibe. He was batshit crazy. But, you know, everyone who, who, who traveled with him or tried traveling with him to space did so of their own free will. He didn't strong arm his followers into coming on board, you know, with him, <laughs> you know, and leave an ID to make the job of the police who found them easier, leaving an exit, you know, videos to explain their choices to, to families, leaving some quarters as a joke. Got to be the most polite suicide cult uh, ever and with a sense of humor on top of it, on top of it. So uh, that, that was very interesting to me. Last update. Let's talk about those flat earth fucking idiots. Numerous, a lot of time suckers, including Kirk Withrow, uh, Nicole Alley, uh, Joe uh, Yagalo, thanks for the pronunciation guy, Joe, uh, and other Cult of the Curious members let me know that the B.O.B., the hip-hop dude, the Flat Earth Believer, uh, has set up a GoFundMe, a GoFundMe uh, campaign to, don't, don't donate to this one, donate to the Vegas one, not this one, uh, he set up a GoFundMe campaign to raise money to launch satellites uh, to prove the earth is flat. I wish I was fucking kidding. So far, as of Saturday afternoon, October 7th, the day I, I looked this up, he'd raised $6,000 in 16 days towards his goal of a million dollars. That does make me happy that he only raised 6000 towards the million. You know, like I would, be, I would be super bummed out if I looked and he like was already like somehow over goal. Like he, he already had $1.5 million. Uh, and then he says in the, you know, when he's asking for support, he says, what's up guys, help support BOB purchase and launch multiple weather balloons and satellites into space for experimental exploration. He's donated $1,000 to the cause to keep it going. And we'll be keeping you updated with step-by-step -step documentation of the process. Help BOB find the curve. Fuck me. So I guess he's only raised 5,000. So, you know, that's even better. Uh, God damn BOB. If by some chance you are listening which I doubt you are because as goofy as I can be, this podcast is probably still too intellectual for your tastes. But if you are listening, please, instead of raising a million dollars for satellites and weather balloons, shit that already exists that other people are already f have fucking done for a long time, how about you spend $29? $29 on a book called Barron's How to Prepare for the GED High School Equivalency Exam. The main reason I am sure that you think the earth is flat is because you dropped out of high school in the ninth grade and you've never educated yourself since, you ignorant fucking lunatic. 
For a few hundred bucks, you can take your GED test online. Go to GED.com for more info. I looked into it. You can as well. I also looked into getting an online college degree for less than $10,000, right? Less than ten grand, you can get an online bachelor's degree after you get your GED if you put in the work. Use the $5,000 you've already raised to pay for the first two years. You can get an associate's for that. Focus on science classes. Stop hanging out with every friend you have now who doesn't currently think you're an idiot. Or just listen to this argument against a flat earth. Okay, here, here's how it goes. On one side of the flat earth argument, on the earth is round side, is every legitimate scientist alive? On the earth is round side, is every college astronomy professor alive? On the earth is round side, is every motherfucker working at NASA, everyone who's worked as a pilot, every one of those people who are not also schizophrenic or otherwise mentally ill. On your side, on the other side, on the earth is flat side of the argument is you, your dumb friends, Tila Tequila, and a few thousand other ignorant people who don't know fucking anything about science. Please. Stop acting like a character out of idiocracy. Stop dumbing down the masses, right? You're a public figure. There are people who find you very influential. There are people who listen to you. You are tr literally dumbing down America just by the, the, the fucking preposterous idiotic notions that you so vehemently claim to be true. Please stop it. The world has enough ignorance, right? Stop adding to it. Or... You know, keep being, keep being, uh, you know, doing what you're doing. Keep giving us reasons to make fun of you on Time Suck. I do find it very entertaining. So I guess really either way is a win. All right. That is it for the updates today. Thank you, Time Suckers. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right, so have a great week, everybody. Follow Suck on social media, uh, at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, where you can vote uh, for next Friday's you know, 1,100 iTunes review bonus suck. Is it going to be D.B. Cooper? Is it going to be Bruce Lee? Or is it going to be the Amityville house haunting? You get to decide. Uh, whichever one gets the most you know, comments is the one that will be. Uh, you have until Friday the 13th at midnight Pacific time to make that decision. And uh, have a great week. Hail Nimrod, and keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. 
This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.